there is the light out to start when tomorrow comes. Am I on? Do you hear the people sing? Singing the songs of angry men. This is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. Welcome to the revolution. Okay? Just like the Jedis against the Empire in Star Wars, like William Wallace in Braveheart screaming, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Or the African-American struggle for equality. I have a dream. We have opened up the pages of a history of a revolution, an entire nation struggling for freedom. And this, guys, is actually part of our story. As Christians, we are the people of God. This is our family history. We heard that last night. That's going to suck. <laughs> Magnetic. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we heard last night that God gathers and scatters. He gathers a people of God. Now that's the church. Then it's Israel. But as we read this history of the people of God, it raises a question for us. Where is God? I don't know if that's a question you've ever asked. Maybe you find it hard to believe in God. Where is He? If He wants us to follow Him, shouldn't He make Himself a bit more obvious? Where is God? One of my good friends has been sick, really sick, for so long. And I can see the effect that it has on her, and I hate watching it. When I see that, I'm like, where are you, God? Or do you ask it as you see the pain in the world, on the news with wars and stuff like that? Where are you, God? Are you out there? Do you care? That's the question that God's people are asking as this story starts. That's point one. If you're taking notes on page 20, where is God? His people suffer as slaves. See, chapter one of Exodus. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up because we're going to be looking at that. Chapter one of Exodus is an ugly picture. We're in Egypt. Now, back then, a few thousand years ago, Egypt was the most powerful country in the world, like America or China today. So check out verse number 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. This king, a.k.a. Pharaoh, feels a bit threatened by a group of people that live in his land. It might be a bit like how some people feel about Muslims today. Not me, but I sometimes hear other people say, Look how many Muslims there are in Australia. What if they try to take over? That's how Pharaoh's feeling about the Israelites living in his country. So look at verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them uh, or, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Now, when you see the word Israelites in that, that's the people of God. And by verse 11, God's people are suffering as slaves. Look at verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So you think your Macca's shift is bad? It's nothing compared to this. These guys have slave masters over them. It says in verse 11, to oppress them. Now, I'll show you a picture of oppression. 
Oppression means beating people down to keep them under control. So just imagine being an Israelite in verse 12 to 14. Read that with me. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now that sounds bad, but just wait, because through this chapter, it just keeps getting worse because that's when the murders start. Look at verse 15 16. Pharaoh tells the Hebrew women, Hebrew is same as Israelite, just different word, same group of people. Pharaoh tells the Hebrew women to kill any Israelite baby boys that are born. Now, of course, the Israelites don't murder their own babies. And so in verse 22, he tells his whole country to go out and do that. Have a look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So can you, can you feel the pain of this people? I wonder if it might have been similar to the pain of Jews in Nazi Germany. Have you heard about this? The Nazis hated Jews. And um, about 100 or so years ago, about 20 million people were killed. Listen to the story of a lady, Eva Galler. Here's what she said. She was a Jew. She survived. But she said, the laws didn't apply to us. Only the bad laws applied to us. We had to wear a star so that everybody could recognize us. It wasn't against the law for somebody to kill us. That law didn't apply to us. Everybody could do to us whatever they wanted. The neighbors who weren't Jewish didn't want to know us anymore. When everybody tried to kill us, nobody helped. And 20 million people died. And that whole time the Jews were asking, where is God? And it's just like the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1. They're in slavery. Their children are being killed and they're wondering, where is God? Now, guys, the Bible's not a fairy tale. It's about real people in real situations. And so it speaks to us about the real situations that we face. You'll find that if you get to know the Bible, there's stuff in it for whatever you're going through. See, God has something to say to those who are in slavery around the world. And as well to us when we cry out, Where are you, God? Exodus answers that question. And so can I encourage you to get to know your Bibles and to get to know Exodus this week? And guys, before we move on, some people say this, Christians are sons and daughters of God. We're daughters and we're children of God. We won't suffer. Now, it is true that when you become a Christian, you become God's son, God's daughter. That's true. But in the book of Exodus, you see God's people suffer. We're going to go on to see how God has a purpose for it and a plan to stop it. But we actually should get our expectations right. Even though we are God's people, until we get to heaven where there will be no suffering, there will still be suffering in this life. And I know my instinct in it is to ask, where are you, God? So hold on to that thought. I want to show you something. You know how some TV shows start with flashbacks? Previously on My Kitchen Rules. I don't know if anyone watched that show. I don't. But it turns out a lot of other shows do use this as well. Pokemon. 
Glee, Big Bang Theory, The IT Crowd, Spider-Man movies. I found like 30 different shows in a list on the internet. I didn't just watch all these shows looking for it. Um, that all start with flashbacks and, believe it or not, the book of Exodus. Believe it or not, the book of Exodus starts with a flashback. And that flashback is, if you're taking notes, the next little thing there, God has made promises. And so these promises would have made it that question, where is God, even more intense. I'm going to show you two flashbacks. Flashback one is the how did we get here flashback. It's the story of old mate Joseph. Okay, the end of the book of Exodus, which is right before... Oh, sorry, the end of the book of Genesis, right before Exodus. Old mate Joseph gets sold by his brothers into slavery, um, and he winds up in Egypt. But he actually does a pretty decent job of it. You might know the story, he interprets some dreams, and he ends up second in charge over all of Egypt. And because of him being there, when everyone else runs out of food, Egypt still has heaps of it, and they save a bunch of lives in all around all the different areas. It's a pretty good story. And um, Joseph's dad, Jacob, and the rest of his family, they end up coming to live in Egypt with Joseph, and they're living it up in prosperity because he's a national hero. So if you just read the book before Exodus, that's where it ends. It actually ends with Joseph saying to his brothers, you guys tried to do evil to me, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50 verse 20. God brought us here to save many lives. And God has promised, he says, to take us out of here to bigger and better things. We're going to go to the promised land. That's the story so far. And so Exodus starts with a flashback to that. Check out oh, verses 1 to 4. That's a list of Joseph's family who came to Egypt. And then check out verse 5. The descendants of Jacob, Joseph's dad, numbered 70 in all. Joseph, old mate Joseph, was already in Egypt. So there's a flashback reminding you what's just come. And so as you read that, you're expecting big things. But then they end up slaves. And you're like, what happened to your promise, God? What's going on? That's flashback number one. Flashback number two is, what about Gramps? Okay, I'm talking about great-grandpapa Abraham. You might have heard of him because God made some huge promises to him. You read about him in your read and pray this morning. And we saw it last year on fat. Last year on fat, what we saw was God made the world good, but humanity wrecked it. But God, in his promise to Abraham, promised to turn this whole shebang of a world around and fix it. And so listen to Genesis chapter 12. It'll come up on the screen. The Lord had said to Abram, that's his name, and then God changed it to Abraham. Abram means daddy. Abraham means big daddy. And you'll see why. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That's why it's called Big Daddy, because big nation, great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all, this is big, all peoples on earth will be blessed. If you tracked with that, there are big promises in there. A promised land that they're going to live in. A great nation that they're going to be. Lots of children, lots of descendants. And all the people, all the people on earth will be blessed through Abraham. And that bit is how God's going to fix the world. So it all starts with great-grandpapa Abram and his kids. When we come to Exodus, the Israelites are Abraham's great-great-grandkids. And they're waiting for these promises. So what happens when you're in Exodus chapter 1 
and you read verse 7. Read that with me. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. What does that sound like? I heard one of you guys get it already. It's like those promises. A great nation. And you read that and you're like, it's happening. God is keeping his promises. And in fact, it says it again in verse 12 and again in verse 20. It's almost like uh, when you read verse 12, no matter what Egypt does, you can't stop God's promises coming true. But this flashback makes you wonder, what about the other promises? Where's the promised land? We're stuck in Egypt. This definitely doesn't feel like blessing. We're slaves. What's going on, God? It's a bit like when your mate says, can I borrow some money to buy a pie at the canteen? I promise I'll pay you back. And then every single day, they forget to bring the money. Except this is God that we're talking about. So he's not supposed to forget stuff. And so Moses, when he wrote Exodus chapter 1, he wrote these flashbacks into it to draw attention to this situation that they were in. Where is God? Why isn't he doing what he promised? And guys, this is relevant to us, isn't it? We're going to see this week how God actually does keep those promises. Spoiler, sorry. But they couldn't read ahead like we can and see that. And I kind of wish I could go back and say to them, guys, God hasn't given up on you. It's coming. It's just that his timeline's different to your timeline. And that's so helpful for us to see because there are going to be times when we say, God, why haven't you done what you promised? And God's answer is, I will. My timeline's just different to yours. Keep trusting me. And so as we read Exodus this week, what we're going to see are real events in history that show how God can be trusted to keep his promises, even if it does seem to be taken longer than you expected. So guys, keep hanging on. All right, so chapter one, it kind of feels like the middle of one of those Batman movies, okay? It's been years since everyone heard from Batman. This bad guy has been on a rampage around the city. He's blown up a stadium. He's taken a building hostage. The city's going haywire. Fear is everywhere. Hope is lost. And people say, do you think he's coming back? Where's Batman? That's a bit how it feels in chapter 1. See, did you notice as we looked through that and as it was read, how often God is mentioned? Have a look. See if you can find the word God. The word's almost not there at all. Maybe a couple of times at the end. But mostly through this chapter, the main character of the Bible is missing. And that's the picture that you're meant to get in chapter 1. Where is God? His people are suffering as slaves. Well, he's there. And that's point number two. If you're taking notes, point number two, God is silently at work raising up a rescuer. So that's what we see in chapter two. If chapter two happened today, it would start with one of those Facebook posts. Have you seen these? Uh, I got permission to chuck this up there. Maybe your Insta or Facebook friends aren't doing this as much as my friends are. But chapter two would start with a miracle Facebook post, a child is born. Have a look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. 
Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. This is a, a tribe, a family within God's people. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. I'll tell you why I think this is a miracle Facebook post. Because as you read this, there's no sign of God. If you take a note, that's the next little heading. Look through this section. Can you see the word God here either? No, there's no sign of him. But there are lots of his fingerprints. As you read it, it's kind of like God's fingerprints are all over what happens. I'll show you what I, what I mean by that. Verse number two, the little guy pops out and his mum hides him. Because remember, from chapter one, all the baby boys are being killed. But you can't keep a baby hidden forever. So check out verse number three. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it in tar and pitch, placed the child in it, and put it among the reeds of the bank of the Nile. Now, what are the odds of this working? If an Egyptian finds this guy, dead. To me, this is like putting your baby in a shopping trolley, pushing him down the freeway. That, to me, has about the same chances of working. But I guess she's desperate. She's just, let's see how this goes. And then you read verse 5. And when I read verse 5, I hear scary cello music. Like, I'm losing my voice. Because, read verse 5. That was terrible, wasn't it? But anyway, you get what I mean. Because have a look at verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, the guy who made this rule of everyone killing these guys, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants walking along the riverbank, she saw the basket among the reeds. She saw it. And she sent her female slaves to get it. Now, out of all the people in the country, what are the odds of it being Pharaoh's daughter? But even crazier, verse number six says, when she saw the baby, she killed him. No, she felt sorry for him. And she knows this is an Israelite baby. Okay. Verse seven, Moses' sister gets the bravery award. She runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and she offers to find a Hebrew mum, an Israelite mum, to look after the baby. Now, I think everyone listening would have known who this is going to be, all right? It's going to be the real mum. So this could actually kind of get her in trouble because they've disobeyed, uh, disobeyed Pharaoh. It's a gutsy move, sister. But, by the way, have you noticed so far in Exodus, all the heroes have been the chicks. Don't let anyone tell you that the Bible is down on girls because she's a hero here. Because what happens in verse 8, what are the odds? But it happens... Pharaoh's daughter says yes and in fact verse 9 she pays the mum to look after her own baby yeah that's right what are the odds of this happening the mum gets to raise her own son and get paid for it and then look at verse 10 I want you to read this with me when the child grew older she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses so at the end of it all, Moses lands in Pharaoh's household, which is definitely going to come in handy later, because what could be better preparation for being the guy that's going to confront Pharaoh and lead God's people? But here's the crazy thing. God's not mentioned. And I reckon we're supposed to realize that God has been secretly at work all along. Because what are the odds of this happening all by itself? Um, I watched a YouTube video. Of these guys throwing, this isn't it, I couldn't find it, I wanted to show you, but I couldn't find it. This is another one like it. These guys throwing caps, baseball caps, and no matter what, they always land on the other guy's head. So they throw it like through a car window as it drives past half a footy field away from the back of a motorcycle, and it goes on his head. And you're watching that and you're thinking, there is no way that could happen by itself. And as it turns out, 
I watched another video about this video, and it didn't. Turns out they used string, um, to, and then they filmed it, and then they played it backwards. Okay, so you don't realize, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes, and I think it's the same here, not with string and reverse camera, but. You read this and you realize there's no way this happened by itself. So where's God? Well, he's actually been at work in the background, silently steering it all behind the scenes. So God hasn't abandoned his people. He's actually raising up a rescuer. But they wouldn't have been able to see it, would they? I reckon there's a lesson here for us. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean God's not at work. Just because you can't see the glass door doesn't mean it's not there for you to slam into. Just because you can't see the spider in your tent doesn't mean there isn't one. Think about that while you're going to sleep tonight. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean that God's not at work. It's pretty obvious what this means for us. Don't assume that God's not at work because you can't see it. He's always at work carrying out his plan. Don't you think this is a bit like our lives? How many of us have seen God or or heard from Him? If you're looking for some sign or, or voice from God, well, you might think He's not there. But here in Exodus chapter 2, no one saw God, but He was still there and He was still at work. So don't make the mistake of basing your understanding of God on what you can see and hear. All right, here's a photo of my first fat. Uh, And I just want to zoom in on this guy, okay? And you're like, what's so special about that guy? Exactly. We've zoomed in Exodus chapter 2 right in on one guy, Moses. And it makes you think, what's so special about this guy? Is he like the main character or something? But he's not. And that's actually something he's got to learn. He will be important to the story, but he's not the main character. And so if you take a note, here's the thing that Moses has to learn. Moses learns he's not the hero. So here's what happens in the rest of the chapter. Like a lot of boys, Moses thinks he's Batman. Okay, In verse 12, he rescues a fellow Israelite from an Egyptian. And that is a bit of a hint about what's going to come up. But there's a lesson that he's got to learn first. And so in verse 13 and 14, they say to him, he tries to do another good deed like that. And in verse 14, they say, Who made you our ruler and judge? Who do you think you are, Moses? And that's the problem. He's doing this by himself. Now, ironically, he will end up their ruler and judge. But it's only going to be through what God does, not through him taking that upon himself. And so this chapter 2 ends with kind of a funny moment in like verse... Oh, where is it? Oh, yeah, like verses 11. Oh, verse 15, 16, 17. Um, Basically, he runs for his life away into the desert And he ends up sitting behind a well, like a hole in the ground. And in verse 17, he actually does get to do some rescuing. But it's it's so wussy that it's almost funny. He basically chases away some sheep herders and waters some sheep. And it uses the word like he delivered them, he rescued them. But it's it's just sheep. And, And then he settles down in the bush and he's pretty much a total nobody. Now, as all of that happens, what point is God making to Moses? Moses... You're not the hero. On your own, you're a nobody. He needs to know that this rescue is not coming from any human. And so God is paving the way to show who the true hero is. God is the one who will do this. Okay? 
Now, this, again, is so relevant for us because we get told you can do anything. In reality, God is the one who can do anything. So, guys, don't try to be the hero. God does work through people like Moses, and he can work through you. Good news. But we need to remember, you're not the hero. God is. All right, do you guys feel where this chapter, chapter 2, leaves us? God's people are suffering. God has been at work. He's raised up a rescuer, Moses. But this guy's no hero. He's basically given up and he's run away. And so as you finish chapter 2, it's, it's kind of like that moment you're watching a movie and you're like leaning forward on your seat. You've forgotten about your popcorn. Your ice cream's melting down your hand. You don't even notice. You're like, what's going to happen? And then finally, point three, the Lord our God shows himself. So the bat sign appears over Gotham City. Batman is here. So I'll, I'll pick it up at the end of chapter 2. Verse 23 says, During that long period the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Verse 24 is so good. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. And at the end of that verse so God looked, or verse 25, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God has heard their cry. I want you in your Bibles to underline the words heard, remembered, looked, and was concerned. Heard, looked, remembered, and was concerned. Because what do those words tell you about our God? It tells you that our God is not like Siri. Okay, I didn't bring my phone up here. Oh, yes, I did. Siri is not, is not very good at understanding me when I tell it to do stuff. I won't show you, but sometimes it gets right, sometimes it doesn't. Siri mishears stuff. Now, Siri is pretty good at remembering things, so I guess there's a similarity between God and Siri there. But Siri can't see. Siri, I hate to break it to you, doesn't care. This is what separates our God from all of the false gods that people follow. Our God hears. Our God remembers. Our God looks and knows. And our God cares. By the way, when I say God remembers, I don't mean that he'd forgotten. In fact, it means the opposite of that. It means he hadn't forgotten, he remembered. So I don't know if this is the first time that these guys cry out to God. But to me, it seems like it. I think they're a bit like me. I'm the sort of person that will turn to God last. I'll try almost anything else for help before I'll come to God. And I think the lesson here is to cry out to God first. And based on what happens next, I think you can have confidence that when you cry out to God, He hears. He knows. He sees and He cares. But not only that, in chapter 3, God announces that He will rescue His people. So here's how, it goes, here's how it goes down. First, Moses, the country boy now, he gets a wake-up call that's bigger than finding a transformer in his garage. In chapter 3, verse 2, the God who made the universe appears to him in a tree that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. And it turns out that this God speaks words. In verse 4, he talks to Moses. And in verse 6, He he says to Moses that he's the God that Moses' great-grandfathers knew. 
Now Moses hides because that's what you would do as well if the all-powerful God spoke to you. And then in verse 7, God tells him what he's going to do. Look at verse 8. I have come down, says God, to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That means it's going to have lots of good stuff in it. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay? He's basically saying, I am going to do what I promised. We find out in verse 10 that the way God's going to do it is by sending Moses to Pharaoh, which apparently Moses finds scary because in verse 11, he tries to get out of it and makes all these excuses. But in verse 12, God promises to go with him. And then in verse, 11, oh, verse 13, Moses asks God what his name is. Pause. Do you want to know a secret that will help you make more friends? Here it is. You ready for this? Learn people's names. Okay, I kid you not. If you can remember more people's names, you will have more friends. Why? Because knowing someone's name is the start of being able to have a relationship with that person. Back in the day as well, when this was written, that's how they thought about the names of gods. Knowing the name of a god made it possible to have a relationship with that god. There's something else as well that we don't really realize. To us, names are just names. But back then, the name of a god or anything really told you something about that thing. The example I could think of this was like the seven dwarves. Dopey, Sleepy, Doc, Happy. Their names tell you about them. And that was the way that they saw names. So to, to find out God's name is actually a pretty big thing. It opens up the possibility of a relationship with him. And it tells us a lot about him. So what's God's name? Are you ready for this? His name is Yahweh, which means I am. This is in verse 14. God says, so Moses asks, what's your name? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now the word for I am there in Hebrew, I'm studying Hebrew Bible College, uh, it, it mean, but I knew this before because everyone knows this because it's, it's such a big thing. I am is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And, and the word when you translate it literally does, does mean I am or I will be. So God says his name is I am who I am or I will be who I am or I will be who I will be. Now that's a pretty strange name. I think we're touching on really, really deep stuff. See, what does God's name mean? This blows my mind. Here are some options. Number one, could be that God is saying by his name, I am pure existence. I am. I'm the definition of reality. Everything else that exists comes from me, but I, I just am. There's option one. Option two, he could be saying that his name means you can't define me by anything else. I'm not that thing or that thing. I am who I am. Option two. Or it could be option three. He's saying by his name, I am completely free. Everything else has limits on what they can do, but I can do whatever I want. I will do what I will do. 
Now, I think it's actually probably all of those things and more. I think it's probably deeper than we realize. In fact, the rest of Exodus is there to show us what God means by this name, I am, what it means for God to be the I am. When you read your Bible and you see the, the Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capitals, that's God's name, that's Yahweh. That's how we put it there. So that's why in verse 15 it has that. So one year when I was on fat, um, when I was in year 11, they gave us wristbands. I got a picture one. Uh, that even might be my wrist. I think it could be. And on this wristband, it said, the Lord is God. And I wore it to school. And my mate asked me, because he saw it, he was like, the Lord is God. Isn't that a bit unnecessary? Like, isn't that kind of like saying, God is God? Well, after reading this passage, I think the answer to that question is no. The true and living God wants you to know that he actually has a name. He's not just any God. The Lord is God. Yahweh is God. And Yahweh, he wants to be known. And so as we finish, here's a question for you this morning. Do you know God? Or do you just know about him? That's something to work out this week. But let's finish by asking that question that we began with. Where is God? Because now we know. Sometimes it seems like he's not there. But he was and always is silently at work. Not only that, but he has shown himself. Now, should we wait for God to pop up in a burning bush for us? That's the wrong way to apply this. In all of history, that's happened how many times? Once. He has shown himself, and it's written down for us here. Later on, he actually visited in Jesus, and that's written down here for us as well. So where is God? Well, you can find him anytime you want in these pages. Now, Yahweh's not done in Exodus. And we're going to see more of what he's like in the coming chapters because he has heard his people and he is coming. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are there, that you hear, see, remember, and care. Thank you that even when we can't see you, we know that Uh, You are silently at work. Thank you that, not only that, but you also showed up and told us your name, that you're the great I am, and we don't understand that. It blows our minds, but you're bigger than we can understand, and and that's a good thing. And Father, we, we thank you that you also showed up in Jesus to show us what you're like as well. I pray that the people in this room would be able to trust you, trust your promises, even if it seems to be taking longer than they expected. And I pray that we would know you, not just know about you. In Jesus' name, amen.